Hello everyone, I hope you are well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Uravallen and I want to welcome you all to Future is Blue, a series of podcasts bringing together top experts from academia and think tanks to discuss the most pressing European economic and policy challenges of today. This is a Funkas Europe initiative and we hope we can bring new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. Today, we are joined by Sander Tordoir, Senior Economist at the Center for European Reform, and Raymond Torres, Funkas Europe Director. Hello, Sander. How are you? Hi, great. Looking forward to uh, the holidays. Nice to be here. <laughs> not yet. We're not there yet. First, we need to talk about what we learned this year. But okay, let's uh, hold that for a moment. And I need to say hello to Raymond as well. Raymond, how are you doing? Hello, yes. Very hopeful for the, for the new year. Uh, with plenty, plenty of hope for the for the better. That's good. Uh, that's great to have hope. We need that. And this is a bit special today because it's our last episode of 2023, and we thought it would make sense to to take a step back to to what we saw during this year, and also um, let's try to anticipate what's coming next in uh, 2024. So um, let's start with 2023. Sander, and so when you look back at the economic developments we saw this year, what are the, your one or two key learnings? Yeah, a lot was happening, and then on some level, also not. I think the European economy was the big break in a sense was more in 2022 when we were coming out of a quite a strong pandemic recovery, it helped by the pandemic recovery fund helped by reopening the economies and and that really was derailed a bit by russia's invasion of ukraine it didn't quite crash the european economy this is the the great german gas debate with with the cutoff from gas tipped germany into a deep recession it didn't but 2023 has been a, a bit of a a long slug period where the European economy isn't growing very fast, except in some smaller countries that are doing well for particular reasons. So there wasn't really a big story there in a sense. I think where the two big stories were, were one on Europe's soul searching when it comes to industrial policy, the Inflation Reduction Act panic really hit home and the sense of can Europe keep up with the subsidies of the US and China. And the other big story, I think, is a, a soul searching about the role of fiscal policy in Europe linked to the big fiscal rules debate that I have been, I have my fair share of, blue, of bruises and scars from that debate. But um, I think those two debates have been really there. And I think the lessons for me are that I think that Europe has been over panicking about needing to copy the Chinese and American model. So in a sense, it's good that we didn't dramatically change policy uh, to the extent that maybe some had hoped. And on the fiscal side, I think the jury is a bit out whether Europe is making the right decision to be more restrained and to aim for lower deficits and debts than 
the U.S. and China. Uh, Raymond, on, on, do you agree with? Um, do you share the what Sander said? He mentioned the fis the fiscal rules debate, the reaction to IRA legislation in the U.S. What are your main takeaways of 2023? Yes, I I, I broadly agree, and indeed in my in my own words, huh, I would say that uh, on the on the positive side, um, a key lesson from 2023 is that after all. The, the economy has done better than, than feared. I mean, obviously, there was a conjunction of very negative factors and negative um, energy shock, which still uh, was, was affecting a number of economies, in particular the center of Europe. Um, uh, you know, a war still going on, uh, geopolitical tensions, and in particular, also uh, monetary policy tightening, a process of tightening which we had not seen for a long time. So the, you know, the projections were really gloomy uh, for, for the economy, but in the end, well, I mean, overall, I mean, we're both, we are nearing a recession in some countries, but it's not a deep recession, perhaps not as, as much as feared. There have been, let's say, some, uh, some automatic stabilizers or, or uh, in the form of a particular household savings. The labor market has been particularly resilient and a major, you know, a major plus for, for Europe. So let's say on the conjunctural point of view, I think overall, I, I, I gather a positive note, but maybe uh, on, on a less positive note and very much in line with what uh, Sander was saying, I think we probably have, have uh, underestimated the structural challenge uh, that uh, uh, Europe is facing. I mean, in terms of a, a number, a number of major trends, which are really, uh, you know, uh, increasing pressure on the on the EU, on the EU economy and EU societies. Uh, the demography, of course, uh, but also uh, you know major shifts in, in global trade. Uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act has been, uh, uh, you know, I think, um, a, a game changer because indeed uh, Europe has to find its, its own way. I mean, I agree, we should not mimic. US or China, we have to find our own way, but we're still working on it, I would say, and not to mention the environmental challenges as well. So there are some structural issues, which in a way, perhaps were not always part of the, the main discussion. We've very much focused very much on short-term issues, how the economy would, would evolve, but indeed the, these underlying issues perhaps, is, is my main lesson is that we could devote much more attention to that. Absolutely. Raymond, uh, before we go into the 2024, Sander, would you like to react with what about what Ram Raymond was saying about this uh, structural challenge that, that the EU is having and how to react to that? Or No, absolutely. And uh, how, as a former central banker, could I forget monetary policy? It's an outrageous sin, and I'm happy that Raymond fi fixed my flaw. Um, no, I, I think that's another major story and, and I, I tend to think that the European Central Bank has overdone it a bit. If you look at the U European response to the inflation shock, it's basically very similar to the US and to the Federal Reserve, even though the US has, a much, has had much stronger growth this last uh, 18 months than we have had. and so. I, there's a reckoning there and that that's one of my main concerns going into next year is that we have to some of these structural challenges and on top of that we may have interest rates that are really too high and that will further do some damage in the short run to the European economy in a phase where 
we may actually need to move faster and where we need the green transition, the digital transition to accelerate and not be slowed down by an economy that's has not collapsed and that's a good story but it's also not doing particularly well and so that question of the us the biden administration chooses for a hot economy where they run things hot and they make sure that there's a lot of demand and they spend a lot of money making sure that that's the case we may choose to have an anemic economy and i think that will be a big question people will look back on in this phase was europe right or were the americans right so, Raymond, who was right? Was was the U.S. right with this monetary policy and, and so on? Or is or we got it right here at the other side of the Atlantic? I think overall the, the U.S. has probably... I mean, pro, they probably underestimated more than in the case in Europe the uh, inflationary process. So in the beginning, I would say perhaps Europe was doing a little better than the U.S. Uh, but uh, uh, in the last phase, I agree with Sander, the, the U.S. has been much more flexible and has understood perhaps more than is the case of, of the ECB, the, uh, the disinflation process already going on, and therefore the need to be prepared to, to react very soon. It's, it's symptomatic that the, uh, you know, the ECB increased interest rates in, in September still, and, and now we're seeing a situation where um, it may have to you know, move relatively quickly compared to what was said before, to um, possibly three interest rate cuts next year. Whereas in the case of the US, they have already uh, changed the, very much the, you know, the message in terms of the future. And I think it has uh, probably uh, an influence in markets. And, you know, it's much more, uh, let's say, consistent with the evolution of markets and the evolution of the US economy. So uh, overall, I would say, and if, if one element of hope for next year would be for me that, um, the, the monetary policy, in particular the ECB, does not wait to have 2% two per, two inflation, which is the target, before cutting interest rates. I think it's very important that as soon as the, you know, the, the main underlying trends are clearly on, the, on, a, on a process towards 2%, that, the, the, that you know, a, a change in monetary policy is, 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 is resumed, of course, with a cut of interest rate, which in principle should be next spring. Thank you, Raymond. This is a nice transition to the other question we had for you, and it's about exactly that. What do you wish to see uh, in 2024 in terms of um, a new economic development? And Raymond mentioned a change in monetary policy before we get to the target of 2% inflation. Sander, what is your... Um, your your dream economic development that you want to see in the next months in 2024? Uh, well, I, I would actually fully agree with Raymond on the ECB should move quickly enough to avoid that we go back to a low inflation, too low inflation world, if they can. But um, probably the thing that I would like to see in, in a year that's going to be a, a monster election year around the world, right? We have the, the US election coming up. There's uh, the Economist was writing, there's 2 billion people around the world going to the polls next year. We have the European election. So it's not a year where policy will be so much in focus as politics. But in terms of the policy that I think needs to happen, I, I think Europe should think quite heavily about how they want to respond to 
the China shock because the Chinese economy is profoundly unbalanced. They, the Beijing government seems unwilling to support domestic consumption and they're funneling even more money into industrial exports and that puts them on a collision course with us because we're fishing in the same pond and so I think that's a big challenge and you see you saw the EU China summit was much more tense than I've ever seen it before with von der Leyen and Dombrovskis sounding some tough rhetoric about China basically not giving Europe enough market access and flooding world markets with, with, with its overproduction, right? They're overproducing because they're not consuming all that much. Their savings rate is above 50%. It's incredible. Uh, whereas for most advanced economies, it's, you know, it's, it's one, one third or much less than that. So um, in that sense, uh, I think Europe needs to think hard about that. And I hope we get going on that to avoid that uh, we have some really negative political and economic consequences next year. That's my hope. I see. All right. Uh, Raymond, what is your reaction to that? Yes, uh, I, I, in, in one, one, one concrete area uh, along, along the same lines where uh, we need to be much more assertive in Europe would be uh, in the area of, um, uh, you know, in a way, uh, public finances. Because on the one hand, uh, next year is, will be the first year of uh, the, the reactivated uh, fiscal rules. So it's probably the case that uh, countries will be moving towards a restrictive fiscal policy. Uh, and uh, well, because they need, they need to balance their budget according to those, to those rules. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, the, uh, for Europe to be, to be able to, you know, to face the very structural challenges that was mentioned before, and the ones that uh, Sander just added, uh, Europe will need to also to invest. Uh, and, and I don't see uh, how to square the circle without uh, much more of a EU fiscal capacity. So if there is an element of hope, an additional one uh, for, for next year would be to, for, for this to be one of the themes of the EU elections next year. And not, not, not the fiscal capacity as such, you know, just for the sake of having it, but with a, a view of a strategic, uh, you know, orientation of, of, of investment uh, around the, the things that, that uh, the public goods that uh, the Europe needs. And I think that's, that becomes critical now. We, we had, uh, you know, a good example with the uh, next declaration, EU, uh, but uh, this was, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the, of the pandemic, the question would be perhaps whether to perpetuate it, uh, gather the lessons from the first round of the next generation EU, and how to fund it, of course. I mean, we have a, a fiscal break or a debt break in Germany, so it's, it's unclear whether it can be done at the country level, even in Germany. Uh, but uh, at the EU level, I believe that many of the things that, can be, that, uh, that should be done will require some fiscal capacity. So if I retain one hope, it would be that one, that this, this is an issue which become, becomes important in the, in the EU elections. EU needs fiscal capacity according to the, 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 the size of the challenges that we are and the structural changes that we are covering in this podcast. Sander, any more thoughts before we close about what you wish to happen uh, next year or you fear to happen next year? <laughs> you could also mention that if you want. I, I, I have a very concrete one, which is about language. 
because one of the things that drives me nuts is that in Europe, when we talk about these problems, some of which we've now discussed, all of that gets called Europe's competitiveness problem. And Letta and Mario Draghi have been asked to write reports for the European Council and Commission, respectively, on Europe's competitiveness problem. But we don't actually have a competitiveness problem. We are a net exporter still around the world. Europe's current account surplus is, is coming roaring back after the energy shock. And so to me, that language is wrong. And it means that we don't have the proper language to discuss some of the fiscal policy challenges that we, we really have. So I would agree with Raymond and we need to clean up the language. That would be a concrete hope I have. Okay, on my side, Sander, I promise to avoid negative language in this podcast. No negative language is allowed from now on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can use negative language. Just don't say we have a competitiveness problem. Okay, okay, great. Um, okay, great discussion. Unless, uh, Raymond, would, would, you, would you like to say a final word? Otherwise, we can. I think we can close. Yes, I, I believe that uh, we, we covered many issues and many, many hopes for, for next year. And uh, let me wish you all uh, about the best possible year. Uh, 2024 yeah uh, let me thank you both and let me thank Sander because it's been a great collaboration throughout the year uh, this partnership with the Center for European Reform uh, partnering for a number of podcasts throughout the year it's been fantastic uh, we hope to continue that, that effort next year Sander thanks a lot great absolutely no it's been really fun thanks uh, thanks for this it was a good way to wrap up many nice discussions Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers on Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to recommend it to others and share it on social media. Thank you all and stay well.